Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 8th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's top stories. China rebukes the U.S. and warns of a potential conflict. The U.K. unveils a bill to stop illegal entry from the English Channel. Canada's Justin Trudeau orders a probe into the alleged Chinese election meddling. Sources say the White House may begin detaining migrant families again. Israel allegedly strikes Syria's Aleppo airport. Zelensky pledges to continue defending Bakhmut. U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says interest rates may increase more than expected. Turkey's opposition names Kamai Kalich Duro as its presidential candidate. South Korea announces a deal on a Japan-forced labor dispute. And Japan is forced to destroy its flagship H-3 rocket in a failed launch. In our first story today, the China foreign minister warns of a conflict with the U.S. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, The Guardian, and CNN. During his first public appearance as China's foreign minister at the country's annual parliamentary meeting on Tuesday, recently appointed Qin Gong warned that Washington and Beijing are on a path towards conflict and confrontation unless the U.S. changes policy. Qin alleged that the U.S. engages in suppression and containment of China instead of fair competition, which he says China will not continue to tolerate. He added that the U.S. erroneously regards China as its primary rival and most consequential geopolitical challenge. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby disagreed, saying that U.S. policy on China has remained consistent, adding that U.S. President Joe Biden believes tensions can be overcome and that the U.S. wants competition, not conflict. Chin also used the conference as an opportunity to defend China's relationship with Russia, saying that it set an example for global foreign relations and that the more unstable the world becomes, the more imperative it is for China and Russia to steadily advance their relations. Affairs between the U.S. and China have become strained in recent years, notably in regard to trade, human rights, and the self-ruled island of Taiwan, which Beijing recognizes as its sovereign territory. Relations hit a low earlier this year when a suspected Chinese spy balloon was shot down by a U.S. fighter jet. Chin also criticizes the U.S. response, which he says created a diplomatic crisis that could have been avoided. All right, those were the facts that all the sources agreed on. Now for the spins where they differ. Let's start with the anti-China narrative from CNN. Chin, who had established a reputation for being cautious, has quickly changed tune with his latest provocative rhetoric, which demonstrates Beijing's hegemonic global policies. U.S. officials are worried about China's expansive political and economic goals and the possibility of war over Taiwan, with many rightly calling for efforts to curb Chinese influence abroad. Beijing is the one provoking conflict, as exhibited by this inflammatory speech. Al Jazeera brings us a pro-China narrative. The U.S. may say that it's establishing protections to prevent conflict with China, but in reality, it's just creating a practice where China isn't allowed to respond when it's attacked or slandered. Western nations led by the U.S. have implemented unfair containment and suppression of Beijing, and any consequences that come from this provocation are Washington's to bear. 
The UK unveils a bill to stop illegal entry from the English Channel. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Al Jazeera, The Telegraph, Reuters, The Associated Press, and ABC News. On Tuesday, the UK announced a new bill that focuses on deterring illegal immigration, denying entry to migrants who cross the English Channel in small boats or use other illegal means of entering the UK. The legislation, dubbed the Illegal Migration Bill, will detain and deport illegal migrants back home or to a safe third country, and also bar them from returning or seeking citizenship. The measures come amid fears that the UK is attracting human smugglers who use women and children to gain entry. More than 45,000 migrants reportedly attempted the dangerous journey across the English Channel to enter the UK in 2022, up 500% from two years ago. Sunak has made tackling the issue one of his five main priorities. The UK government says that many people making the journey are economic migrants and adds that it will establish more legal asylum pathways for people from Afghanistan, Hong Kong, and Ukraine. Home Secretary Suella Braverman acknowledged the bill, which still needs to be approved by Parliament, may face legal challenges amid questions of its compatibility with Britain's international obligations. And here's the right narrative from the Daily Mail. The UK government is taking the bold and necessary step to crack down on the migration crisis as thousands of people dangerously and illegally traverse the English Channel. Gangs use women and children to gain entry to the UK, smuggling them against their will, and something has to be done. And the left narrative comes from the national news. The UK government is implementing an unethical and unworkable policy that will put asylum seekers in even graver danger as many people are leaving dangerous countries that they cannot return to. The UK must work with the international community to help refugees, not abandon them. That is a tricky situation because I'm sure both things are true again, right? People, gangs are smuggling people illegally and people are legitimately leaving war-torn countries to you know, find a better life. One thing I do appreciate about this legislation, it's just called the illegal migration bill. It's not the moms for freedom against whatever happy flower (laughs) bill to make it sound better. It's the illegal migration bill. It's talking illegal migration. Yeah. Let's just keep it clean and simple. Let's back to basics, folks. Trudeau orders a probe into alleged Chinese election meddling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, The Guardian, RTE, and the South China Morning Post. On Monday, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced an independent special rapporteur to investigate recent allegations of Chinese interference in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections and two probes by the Parliament's National Security Committee and Canada's National Security and Intelligence Review Agency. This comes after Canadian media reports cited anonymous intelligence sources claiming China's influence in the previous two elections. Police are currently investigating the reports for potential violations of security laws. The Globe and Mail reported last month that China preferred to see Trudeau's liberals re-elected in 2021 over conservative politicians who hold a harsher stance on Beijing. Government officials recognize the alleged attempted meddling, but maintain the election outcomes weren't affected. This was echoed by an independent panel created to monitor national election threats, which told lawmakers last week that China's alleged influence didn't threaten Canada's free and fair election in 2021. 
Opposition parties have called for an independent public inquiry into the matter, a power that the rapporteur, to be named in the coming days, will be able to recommend. Last month, Canada also banned the use of Chinese-owned social media app TikTok on government-issued devices amid concerns over privacy and security risks. In response to the latest news, China has called the allegations baseless and defamatory, claiming it's not interested in influencing Canada's internal affairs. All right, we have a right narrative spin on this story from Western Standard. Trudeau's appointment of an independent special rapporteur is nothing more than an attempt to buy more time. There's no obligation for the prime minister to act on any recommendations, and the decision takes the pressure off Trudeau for the weeks to come. Having repeatedly attempted to shrug off the issue, this move is nothing but damage control instead of objective action. Unsurprising, considering Trudeau's liberal government stood to benefit the most from China's alleged interference. Here's the left narrative from CBC. The ultimate question for Trudeau is whether he has done or will do everything he can to maintain trust in Canadian democracy. Appointing an independent investigator is a step in this direction. While it's fair to ask whether the government has so far responded correctly, just as it's fair to question the credibility of the media reports, using obscure data to make allegations of a government cover-up is unacceptable. And the pro-China narrative comes from China Daily. Trudeau's popularity is on the decline, and this has led to the common Western practice of summoning imaginary accusations against China to divert the public's attention from Canada's own failings. The so-called China interference claims are absurd, as are Trudeau's investigations, and shouldn't be taken seriously. I had the poutine at... Skillet Diner. You're familiar with Skillet, the popular Seattle food truck, and they have their like restaurants. And it was too salty. The gravy and the fry, the fries were salted enough to eat, and then the gravy was too salty, and the whole thing was too salty. That's what I think about Americans trying to get poutine under control. And that's a good restaurant too. And they just it was too. It is, but you know what? I bet it's. I bet poutine is special. It's in this category of Gatorade, where it's like it really doesn't taste good unless you are dehydrated and you need it. Oh right, your electrolytes replaced. So yeah, if you are in the frozen north and you've been playing hockey all day or running around chopping wood in the snow, poutine here are some salty cheese curds with some salty gravy and some salty fries, and there you go. That makes sense. Wash it down with a Molson ice, and you're good to go. All right, I'm back on board. (laughs) All right, good. Biden considers resuming the detention of migrant families. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, CNN, Daily Mail, NBC, and Fox News. President Biden's administration is reportedly considering reinstituting the practice of detaining migrant families who illegally cross the border. Previously, the administration ended family detention in favor of a system that releases families into the U.S. and tracks them with technology. With the Title 42 border policy, which allows border agents to reject on public health grounds migrants illegally crossing the border, ending in May, the administration has reportedly held meetings between the White House and the Department of Homeland Security to mull several options as border crossings remain high. Biden loudly campaigned against the practice of detaining migrant families during his presidential run in 2020. He eliminated the policy shortly after taking office. The policy started in 2014 under former President Obama and continued during former President Trump's time in office. 
Another option reportedly on the table is for the administration to order the arrest of migrant families who have been cited for deportation. Thank you for those facts, Scott. Here are the narrative spins, starting with a Republican narrative from the New York Post. So, it turns out policing the border and controlling illegal immigration isn't easy. After criticizing the Trump administration and calling its policies inhumane, Biden is considering re-implementing family detention just a month after he tightened rules for claiming asylum. At least Biden's clear hypocrisy might lead to an actual effective policy moving forward. And the Democratic narrative comes from MSNBC. The administration is just considering detaining migrant families among several options for dealing with a potential surge of border crossings. Nothing has been implemented. If the administration brings back this policy, it would only be for short-term detentions, not the indefinite ones seen under Trump. And Common Dreams gives us an establishment critical narrative. Detaining migrant families was unacceptable under previous administrations, and Biden bringing it back after campaigning against it and ending it would be shameful and a global embarrassment. It's a cruel and inhumane policy that has no place in the U.S., which likes to boast it's the freest country in the world. In our next story, Israel allegedly strikes Syria's Aleppo airport. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, DW, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and Ashark al-Assad. Syrian state media reported early on Tuesday that a strike allegedly carried out by Israel hit Aleppo's international airport, causing material damage and taking it out of service. A Syrian transport ministry official reported that aid flights for those affected by the devastating earthquakes that struck the region last month would be diverted to Damascus and Latakia airports, as Aleppo airport was the main conduit of aid into the area. Aleppo city, as well as its environs, suffered widespread destruction during Syria's civil war and was again heavily damaged in the 7.8 magnitude earthquake that hit southern Turkey and northern Syria in February. Multiple nations have sent aid through the airport. This was the second attack on Aleppo airport in six months, and according to Syrian media, Syrian air defenses intercepted missiles launched from the Mediterranean west of the coastal city of Latakia. The Israeli military declined to comment on the attack. This is the second presumed Israeli strike in Syria since last month's earthquake. Israel has regularly hit targets in Syria, associating most of them with Iran and its proxies. On February 19th, a strike killed at least four civilians and one soldier and left multiple others injured in the central Damascus neighborhood of Kafr Susa. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from Times of Israel. Israel has been clear that it will not permit Iran to freely move weapons and fighters through Syria if such activities threaten Israeli security. It is therefore legitimate for Israel to target Iranian assets in any of the countries into which Iran has dug its tentacles. Tehran is using the tragic earthquake as a cover to move weapons into Syria, and unfortunately Israel must defend itself by responding to this kind of militaristic aggression. Al-Mayadeen brings us an establishment critical narrative. This is just another example of Israel's unjustified aggression towards Syria and the resistance as a whole. While the West continually lectures the world on national sovereignty, it says nothing when Israel attacks civilian infrastructure. 
Even as Syrians are being pulled from the rubble following a massive humanitarian disaster, Israel is continuing to bomb vulnerable regions. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 15% chance that a state-based conflict between Israel and Iran will cause at least 1,000 deaths before the year 2025. And now we turn to day 377 of the fighting in Ukraine, where Zelensky pledges to continue the defense of Bakhmut. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, President Zelensky's official website, Ukrainska Pravda, TASS, Ukraine Forum, and U.S. News and World Report. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky on Monday vowed to persevere in his country's defense of Bakhmut, known as Artyomovsk in Russian, amid reports that Russia is closing in on the capture of the Donetsk city. Last week, an advisor to Zelensky suggested Ukraine may withdraw from Bakhmut. However, following a meeting with military leaders on Monday, Zelensky said in his nightly address that a decision had been made to continue the city's defense and reinforce it with further troops. He said there is no part of Ukraine about which one can say that it can be abandoned. While Zelensky presented the decision as unanimous, a report in the German outlet Bild suggested otherwise. Citing senior Ukrainian officials, the publication claimed there had been disagreements over Bakhmut between Zelensky and Commander-in-Chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Valery Zeluzhny, who reportedly wanted to withdraw Ukrainian forces from the city. Meanwhile, Jan Gagin, an advisor to the head of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DPR, said on Tuesday that DPR forces had already seen new waves of Ukrainian troops preparing to deploy to Bakhmut but questioned the decision as he said all roads in and out of the city were controlled by pro-Russia artillery. His account could not be independently confirmed. Ukrainian officials said one civilian had been killed and seven more were injured in Russian attacks on the wider Donetsk region in the past day. Four civilians were also reported injured in Russian attacks on the Kherson region. Further attacks were recorded in the regions of Luhansk, Sumy, Chernihiv, Kharkiv, and Zaporizhia, without reports of civilian casualties at this stage. Elsewhere, Ukraine's military on Tuesday identified a soldier who it said was shot dead by Russian invaders in a video spread on social media. It named the man, who it described as a hero, as Timofey Shadura, and promised to avenge his death. Both Russian and Ukrainian forces have been seen to be executing and torturing prisoners of war during the course of the conflict, according to a U.N. report issued late last year. Meanwhile, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko said on Tuesday that one terrorist and more than 20 accomplices had been arrested following an attack on a Russian surveillance aircraft at a Belarusian airfield last week. Lukashenko alleged, without providing evidence, that the security service of Ukraine and the CIA were involved in the planning of the incident. Those were the facts, and we'll start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative from Al Jazeera. Russian success in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut would only be symbolically important. It would not have a strategic or operational impact on the war, and would by no means mean Russia had turned the tide of the conflict. And TASS brings us the pro-Russian narrative. Russia's capture of Bakhmut is strategically important, as it has long been the logistics hub for Ukraine's forces in the rest of Donetsk, its capture would also open up further roads of potential Russian advance in the region. And here's another nerd narrative. 
From the Metaculous Prediction community, it says there's a 32% chance there will be a large-scale armed conflict in Russia before 2030. The U.S. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says interest rates may increase even more than expected. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, USA Today, CNBC, and Fox News. On Tuesday, U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell indicated that the Fed may increase the size of its interest rate hikes and borrowing costs to higher-than-projected levels if the economy continues to be robust amid persistently high inflation. Speaking before the Senate Banking Committee, Powell said that the latest economic data was stronger than expected and that the central bank will have to do more to counter inflation. While inflation is down to 6.4 percent from June's high of 9.1 percent, Powell said that bringing inflation back down to its goal of 2 percent has a long way to go. Powell was questioned from both sides as Democratic senators called attention to the Fed's projections that hiking rates could increase the unemployment rate from 3.4 percent to 4.6 percent by the end of 2023. Meanwhile, Republicans primarily attributed inflation to President Joe Biden's spending. The stock market reacted negatively to Powell's comments, with the Dow Jones shedding around 570 points, or 1.72 percent, and the S&P 500 losing 1.53 percent. As the stock indexes tumbled, the two-year Treasury yield hit a 16-year high of 5 percent. Powell's testimony is part of the Fed's two-day semi-annual monetary policy report to Congress, and Powell will appear before the House Financial Services Committee on Wednesday. The New York Times brings us the pro-establishment narrative on this story. Fed Chair Jerome Powell is doing his best to navigate a murky financial situation as the economy remains hot amid high inflation. While some may criticize him for not sticking to an exact plan, he's keeping his options open to make the best decisions as new data continues to emerge. While markets and consumers alike want security, the Fed must remain flexible to tackle an evolving financial landscape. The establishment critical narrative is provided by Zero Hedge. The Fed is trying to correct its own mistakes, but it's too late. It printed an exorbitant amount of money in a very short time and pumped it into the economy at the first sign of distress. Now the Fed is trying to reverse course and tighten monetary policy too much. Central banks are in a difficult situation of their own making, and the forecast isn't pretty. We have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 50% chance that the U.S. Fed funds rate will be no less than 3% on December 31st of 2023. Turkey's opposition names Kılıç Roe as presidential candidate. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Reuters, New York Times, The Guardian, France 24, and DW. Turkey's six-party alliance has named Kamai Kılıç Roe, leader of the main opposition Republican People's Party, or CHP, as their joint candidate for the upcoming presidential and parliamentary elections on May 14th. Kalich was picked as the opposition seeks to out-President Erdogan after a two-decade reign. Our table is a table of peace. Our goal is to take the country to days of prosperity, peace, and joy, he told 2,000 people gathered in Ankara. The nomination was preceded by days of wrangling within the coalition, which includes six parties spanning right-wing nationalists, political Islamists, and secularists. 
Kalich Daru vowed to make the leaders of the other five opposition parties his vice presidents, should he win the presidency. The nomination also comes amid criticism that the 74-year-old economist lacks the political flair and charisma required to challenge Erdogan. The alliance has pledged to return to a parliamentary rather than a presidential system. Polls indicate that the parliamentary and presidential elections in two months will be tight, with the opposition bloc slightly ahead of the governing alliance. The six-party alliance pledges to overturn many of Erdogan's economic, domestic, and foreign affairs policies. If they win, the opposition wants to reduce the president's powers. It also aims to continue Turkey's bid for membership in the EU and restore independence to the country's central bank. Narrative A is provided by Gulf News. Kalic DeRoe's nomination isn't the show of force the opposition needs. It took months, 12 high-profile meetings, and very public infighting for them to decide on him as their presidential candidate. Although the six parties finally agreed, they've revealed just how fragile the opposition bloc is, leaving Kalic DeRoe vulnerable to attacks by Erdogan. And Narrative B comes from the New York Times. Kalich Darrow is a strong candidate that represents diverse political forces. He has vowed to restore democracy if elected and will be a very different president than the incumbent who has damaged the country's economy with inflation as high as 85 percent last year and pushed the nation to the brink of authoritarianism. The coalition no doubt faces challenges, but this election is a prime opportunity to remove Erdogan from power. Eighty-five percent. Yeah, you know inflation. You know the economy's bad when a nation, you know, comes to the precipice of electing a like financial nerd their leader. Like we need this bad. Right. Please set us straight, so that we are not so vulnerable to authoritarianism. Does anyone know long division? South Korea announces a deal on the Japan forced labor dispute. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, ABC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and CNBC. South Korea on Monday announced a plan to compensate victims of forced labor during Japan's 35-year colonial rule as Seoul and Tokyo seek to ease their relationship amid a turbulent Indo-Pacific security situation. The proposed compensation will see those who successfully sued Japanese firms for damages receive money from a fund reliant on private donations. However, the plan has drawn backlash from former forced laborers and their supporters who demand direct compensation and desire an official apology from the Japanese government. The Foundation for Victims of Forced Mobilization by Imperial Japan, which is set to manage the reparations, has said the funds will come from South Korean companies that benefited from the 1965 Seoul-Tokyo Treaty. Japan has insisted that the pact settled all wartime compensation issues. The issue of forced labor, as well as accusations that South Korean women were enslaved in Japanese military brothels during the Japanese rule of the Korean Peninsula, has been causing disputes between the two countries for decades. Their relations further soured in 2018, after South Korea's Supreme Court ordered Japanese companies to pay reparations to 15 South Koreans that were forced to work under Japan's 1910-1945 through 1945 occupation. U.S. President Joe Biden has called this agreement a breakthrough in cooperation between two close U.S. allies. 
highlighting that it had come just as Washington is seeking to strengthen its alliances so as to effectively face challenges from the PRC and North Korea. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from ABC News. This deal is a step toward justice for South Korean victims of Japanese forced labor. While it would be nice for Japanese firms to voluntarily support the foundation benefiting the victims, the most important thing at this point is that Japan is sincerely reasserting its previous apologies and survivors are receiving their compensation. The establishment critical narrative is provided by the Korea Times. This deal is only a victory for Japan, as the nation will avoid paying a single yen to the victims of its forced labor practices, while the companies that benefited from them will face no legal consequences for their war crimes. This is submissive diplomacy meant to patch up relations between Japan and South Korea, but this half-cooked attempt to resolve the biggest humiliation and disappointment in Korea's history will never be accepted by Seoul. Have you ever been to Japan, Melissa? I have not. It's on our list. If you were to visit Japan, what is it you what what's on the list of things that someone's got to do or what do you got to do? Shinkansen. Got to ride the bullet train. Fastest oh, train in the world. Yes. I also have a 4-year-old boy so I might be swaying me a little bit there. I imagine that somehow it's just as smooth as butter. I'm someone who tends to get motion sick. Mm. Um but I lived in San Francisco for many years and I had to take the BART train, you know, there, I guess the closest thing we have to that, which is like a commuter train that's super slow, but, right. uh, it's, that's our version of a bullet train. And after a couple of days, I didn't get sick on it anymore. It was just like, I was able to like, you know, play my Nintendo. I was able to read my, read my iPhone, which hadn't come out yet. I was able to do whatever. I'm a guy who one time on a, um, vacation excursion, I went on a snorkeling thing and they like, you you know, you borrow the snorkels and stuff. Yeah. And I was in the water and the water was so choppy that I threw up into the snorkel up and out the snorkel. (laughs) Oh, no, that's so terrible. No, that's the borrowed snorkel that I had to put back in the box. (laughs) So if you ever happen to go snorkeling in Punta Cana, maybe rinse out your snorkel that they give you uh, just in case. That's I'm told it was quite the sight. I'm told. <laughs> I cannot imagine. <laughs> Our final story, Japan destroys its flagship H-3 rocket in a failed launch. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, the Japan Times, the New York Times, BBC News, Space News, and the Associated Press. The Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, stated on Tuesday that an attempt to launch its next-generation H-3 space rocket failed, with controllers issuing a destruct command 15 minutes after liftoff as there was no possibility of achieving the mission. This comes as the 57-meter-tall H-3 rocket's second-stage engine failed to ignite upon reaching space after being launched from JAXA's Tanegashima Space Center. When the rocket exploded, it also meant that its payload, the Advanced Land Observation Satellite 3, was destroyed. According to Japan's space agency, the debris landed in waters east of the Philippines. The H-3 rocket is a medium-lift rocket designed by JAXA, billed as a cheaper alternative to SpaceX's Falcon 9 for launching commercial and government satellites into Earth's orbit, as Japan seeks to become a major player in the international space industry. 
Japan's science minister Kiko Nagaoka apologized for this regrettable outcome, stating the ministry would swiftly work with JAXA to determine what caused the failure. Last month, JAXA aborted the H-3's first launch allegedly due to an electrical system problem. The H-3 rocket, Japan's first new series in more than two decades, can carry larger payloads than its predecessor, the H-2A, and the launch cost has been reduced by half per launch at about 50 million yen, or $368,000, as design, manufacturing, and operation were simplified. Thank you, Scott, for those final facts. We'll begin this set of narratives with Narrative A from Japan Times. JAXA's launch was a complete failure, and the H3 manufacturer, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, felt the short-term effects when its stock fell 1.8% in morning trade. More importantly, it will also have a long-term impact on Japan's future space policy, business, and technological competitiveness. Hopes were high that the new rocket would give the country a foothold in the increasingly competitive satellite launching business, but they have been dashed. Cross that with Narrative B from Space.com. Tuesday's failed launch was undoubtedly a setback, but not a fatal one. As soon as Japan has located the problem, the next step will be to prove that the H-3 is a reliable, user-friendly, and competitive vehicle for delivering satellites. While there's still a way to go, the H-3 will potentially play a major role in the country's efforts to join others on the global space stage. Here's the nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. There's an 8% chance that Japan will be the first country to administer more territory off Earth than on it. I will say the $368,000 does sound pretty low. Like, that's a good deal. I mean, obviously it exploded and didn't work. Right. That sounds like pretty shockingly not that expensive to get a rocket into space. Yeah. Well, maybe if it were Honda instead of Mitsubishi, it might have been a little better. I'm not paying that Toyota tax. No way. You know? (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.